Welcome to Self-Release Songs. My name is David Garrick. So, this is the last episode of Season 2 of Self-Release Songs podcast. And uh, we'll be back in a couple weeks with the beginning uh, of Season 3. But for now, this is the final episode in Season 2. Before we jump into who our guest is today, I want to talk to you a little bit about Headcount. Uh, if you don't know anything about Headcount... They're a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that promotes participation in democracy through music, culture, and digital media. They've registered almost 400,000 voters for the 2020 election and rank as one of the most active grassroots civic participation organizations in the United States. National Voter Registration Day 2020 was the most successful day in the history of the organization in terms of voters registered. This is the last week to register to vote in many states. And you can check your status and register to vote at headcount.org backslash make your vote count. This election is the most important election you will face in your lifetime. We all know that this president lied to us about the pandemic, and who knows what else they've lied to us about. Everything you love, social media, music, the internet and how it operates and who gets to control it, all that's at stake with this election. This president has taken away many things we love and handcuffed us to make sure our future is not as bright. If you want him out of office, the best thing to do is to make sure you're registered to vote and to vote. You don't get to complain if you don't make your voice heard. Please go to headcount.org and find out more about voter registration, where you can vote, where you can vote in your area, and more. So today's episode, my guest is Johnston Farrow, and you might not know who Johnston Farrow is. Depending on where you live, you might know where he is. Um, I've followed his work for a long time. He's a music journalist, and what I love about this podcast is I get to talk to people I wouldn't normally talk to. I have spoken to Johnston before, but as a general rule, most music journalists in a city don't talk much because... When you see each other, you're at a show and you kind of compare notes about what you've done or what you're seeing or whatever. But he's been on my radar for a long time. When we did the live stream benefit week, the seven days with 22 artists to raise money for independently owned Houston music venues, he interviewed me and I was elated that he did it. You know, he's from Canada and I'm from Houston. He has a journalism degree and I have a business degree. But the one thing we have in common of about five or six things, the most important one is that we both love music. There's no money in journalism. If you think music journalists are driving Ferraris, that's not true. And if they are, you got to wonder how they got the money. The reality of it is, is that you're a music journalist because you love it. Algorithms on the internet decide what you get put in front of you. Music journalist tells you if that's bullshit or not. Is this band good? Is their album good? Have you heard this new song? Have you seen this new video? Did you know about this new tour? There's just a couple of things music journalists cover. And music is integral to life. It's one of the rarest communication forms we have that can unite all of us. It is the only thing I've seen where I've been at a show and I'm talking to a friend and I say something like, you know, the record this band is touring on is my favorite record of theirs so far. And almost every time, someone I've never met will chime in and either say, I agree, I think this album's amazing, or I disagree, I think their first album was their best. doesn't matter what they say. It's a fact that we can communicate with music alone. 
what I like most about Johnson Farrow is that he reminds me of myself in a lot of ways. And I know that sounds terrible to say, but we come from different worlds and yet we have very similar paths as to how we got to where we are. Uh, loving music is just a part of it. Having people in our lives that steered us in the direction of, you bought that record last time you were here, check out this record. You love this band, this is what they were influenced on. And more and more and more. I think he's a hell of a journalist. I respect him more than a lot of people. And music journalists are an interesting bunch of people. A lot of people think, you know, hey, it's some young guy who's okay with getting paid $10 an article or whatever articles pay nowadays. But the reality is, for a lot of us, we're people who have been waiting for that chance to say, I love this. I love this so much, I don't care about the money. I love it so much, I want to share what I love with you. And that's important, especially now, when a lot of us don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know how long we're going to have to stay in our houses. There aren't shows. We've been lucky that there have been live streams. We've been lucky that there's been videos, new songs, new albums, reissued albums. The music industry hasn't slowed down. And thankfully, music journalism hasn't either. There's a couple things in this episode I've never discussed that I'm glad he discusses. Reasons why some articles get written and others don't. Reason why a paper will say, go write about this show, but they won't tell you about another one. I've been lucky in my career. Usually when someone gave me marching orders, I just threw a fit until I didn't have to do it. But not everybody has that luxury. Um, his writing at Culture Map, I look forward to his articles. In fact, he's the only person at that uh, magazine that I read. And a lot of magazines are that way. You find somebody you like and you stick with it. You trust their word. That's the best part of being a music journalist. When someone reaches out to me on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, especially an artist, and says, hey, you know, you compared me to this band. I'd never heard them before. And oh my God, they're great. And I get to reply, thank you so much. You should check out this band or check out that band or this is what they're influenced by. To keep that communication going is the best thing in the world for me and people like Johnston. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening to season two. He's not a musician. He did do DJ work at one time. But like I always say, this podcast is about voices, and he's a huge proponent of independent music. So please enjoy Johnston Farrow. So, where are you from? I grew up in Canada. Uh, I lived in Winnipeg and um, born in Kingston, Ontario, home of the Tragically Hip, uh, and then moved to Winnipeg when I was a baby um, before moving to Texas. And when did you do that move to Texas? In 92, uh, my mom is a nurse and we decided, she decided that she was sick and tired of cold winters and moved us down here. So I moved here for my formative years, um, you know, the height of grunge. Okay. And um, yeah, uh, it was actually uh, probably one of the best things that happened to me moving to San Antonio, living in San Antonio, um, having Austin an hour north uh, drawing such uh, diverse yeah. a set of uh, music and get in the car and go to shows all the time. Even Houston, I drive here sometimes too. So 
you didn't follow the San Antonio rule of metal or Morrissey then, I guess. Oh, my God. Well, I pro- yeah, I definitely follow the Morrissey rule for sure. I haven't heard, really heard that, but definitely metal still lives on like it's 1980 yeah. in San Antonio for sure. I, I remember doing a Slayer show and seeing how much merch they sold. It was two nights, and I almost fell down when I got told the amount. Because like you'd have bands in SBC Center, but before that Alamo Dome, and they would do like ten grand in merch, and Slayer does like a hundred and thirty. Mm. And I got told by their tour manager, well, the guys that see our bands make their our band they make their girlfriends eat at McDonald's all year so they can save money to buy a leather Slayer jacket. <laughs> and that's, that's probably true, but it's really legit. true in San Antonio. Well, you know, like it's obviously San Antonio is known for Aussie peeing on the Alamo, right? You know, pissing on Alamo, eating a bat, whatever. But, um, I mean, he's still a legend there. And they, you know, eventually they, he was banned for years right, from right. playing in San Antonio. And eventually they were on back because everyone in, in San Antonio loves him. So Yeah, we used to joke that you could, well, Paul McCartney played Rotama Park, which is the polo field. Yeah. The horse track, yeah. And it took 10 days to sell out. And King Diamond played the Alamo Dome and it sold out like in an hour. <laughs> yeah, that sounds exactly right. Like, if you listen to the radio there, it's still, it, like, Queensryche is still massive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so how long did you live in San Antonio? Uh, lived there from 92 and uh, went off for college for one year, came back, finished up in 2001 uh, before trekking back to Canada. That's where I ended up getting my journalism degree uh, on the east coast of Canada in Halifax, Nova Scotia which is known for being um, the second Seattle in the early 90s. It's called the Halifax Pop Explosion, okay. uh, led by Sloan. Uh, great indie scene there. Uh, and people who don't understand what East Coast Canada is like, you have to drive, you know, a day to get to Montreal. Sure. And it's a city with uh, six or seven universities. So you have a bunch of creative and bored kids there. So there's nothing much to do but start bands. Right. Um, and so the early 90s, you got Sloan, Thrush Hermit, um, The Super Friends, Jail, who was on Sub Pop. Um, the record executives in Seattle, after Nirvana, Nirvana broke, uh, picked up that Halifax was producing, you know, new sounds. They're looking for the next Nirvana. Right. They come to the Halifax Pop Explosion, which is an annual music festival, and Geffen ends up signing Sloan. And it blows it up. All these young indie artists are signed to labels. Um, and while, you know, the legacy isn't really known outside of, you know, Canada so much, it was such a, a huge moment that when I, that I even registered it as a, you know, as a Canadian kid trying to hold on to his identity just really realized that um, how great the music was and I ended up you know my family being from Nova Scotia like that's where my roots are um, I, I visited after I graduated my first degree um, and uh, from University of Texas San Antonio uh, Roadrunners and um, I fell in love with it I mean uh, just the scene still kind of lived on just a lot of creative um, a creative people there in terms of art, music, and across the spectrum, whether it's indie music, whether it was hip-hop, whether it was dance music, uh, because you're such in a bubble that you have to 
entertain yourself. Sure. And there's a lot of great bands from uh, Canada. Bareneck and Ladies from Canada, right? <laughs> I, I don't know if I can put them in like... But they're the... very nice guys. They're, they're not dicks. Yes. They're nice I mean, dudes. well, Canada is known for being an entertainment sure. hotbed, obviously. But, but here, to make it more relevant, new pornographers are from there. Vancouver, um, yeah. Uh, my favorite, Daniel Romano, the man who's put out 10 records this year alone. He's from Canada. Andy Schalk, who I think is one Schalk of the best records of the yeah. year. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff. And, I mean, I'm to understand that artists can get grants to make records, and you'll have the Polaris Prize. There's a lot of support from Canada. Actually, it's subsidized. Art, uh, music is actually subsidized. It, are the arts in general. Um, you know, there is Factor, um, Factor Canada, which basically funds uh, marketing, touring, uh, videos, recording, uh, and it's basically government funds. Uh, and the one thing about Canada that you, they don't have in the States is that you have CanCon, which is a requirement that you have to play a certain amount of Canadian content on radio or on TV uh, as a way to push the art that's being generated in Canada, which I think is a fantastic, uh, which a fantastic idea, which here they would think is absolutely socialist. Sure, sure. <laughs> well, I mean, it's because I have a question about it, but I would say that is generally, you know, there's a joke about Canada that they abducted people from America. And they got lost on the way back, so they built a whole new civilization that looked like America, but really wasn't. It's different. Everyone who's ever it Canadian is. I've ever spoken to, Kevin McDonald from the Kids in the Hall, because mm-hmm. um, I used to write about comedy, told me, oh, Canada's great, but it's not like America. I mean, is it a thing? When you lived there, did you watch a lot of American television? And- oh, no. So, uh, yeah, we Canadians take a point of pride of saying they are... Uh, fiercely different from Americans um, but the fact is is that the American culture is so immersed into our culture we have the same TV channels we pick up all like the major networks there uh, it's in you know um, you know just the tourists obviously come up there but you know we absorb the American culture while maintaining a cool hipster arm's length from yeah. being well, no. American. I'll give you a perfect example. You'll have something there that I've lived in all over and I've never seen anywhere but Canada, which is dial a bottle. You want somebody to come bring you a bottle of liquor, somebody will, you call a phone number and somebody delivers it to you. I think it's like the greatest idea I've ever seen. I'm like, how come we don't have that? That seems well, it's so starting brilliant. to happen now with the pandemic. but Yeah, that's true. So, <laughs> yeah. did you stay there and well, real quick, what made you decide on journalism? Uh, well, I was always a writer as a kid. Um, you know, being forced to write letters to families. I mean, I was good at it uh, from a young age, writing stories. Um, I had um, a piece of an anti-war, a Persian Gulf anti-war piece uh, published in the community newspaper at 10 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah, which was I bonkers to me. Um, once wrote the Prime Minister of Canada, Canada to ask him to stop killing whales and seals. Wow. You know, <laughs> so from a young age, I uh, latched onto words, you know, and uh, just absorbing books. I was a collector too, so as a kid, collecting comic books. Um, and so the next logical step when I hit puberty was I need to start getting into music. 
you know so I got Rolling Stone and a spin subscription and um, just absorbed um, as much as I could about music so when the time came you know I had a history I have a history degree um, from UTSA um, I decided I like I need to do something and uh, as when I was visiting family I have family members who are journalists uh, or were journalists my mom's maiden name is Medill and um, I think it's Joseph Medill started the Medill School uh, journalism school at Northwestern which is a very revered journalism school yeah, and he started the it. Chicago Tribune as well um, but um, they suggested I go check out this small liberal arts uh, school called University of King's College I get my journalism degree in a year and it basically was a boot camp in all forms of media um, and the first day they said uh, there's two things first is if you're here to make money you're in the wrong place that's fair <laughs> and two and you know like in legit like three people left after that first day they're like all right i'm out um and then two journalism journalism can be whatever you want it to make it you know and i and i said to myself i'm gonna start writing about music because that's what i love um and there was such a fertile scene in halifax that you basically had the opportunity to meet all these artists that were making creating and making great things um and then enough opportunities to to talk to touring bands sure that are coming through that needed people to be at the shows to make money after traveling eight hours from montreal or flying in from boston or whatever right. so they needed to talk to you they needed you just as much as you needed them so it was a great opportunity i mean um and i was there i graduated from journalism school in 2003 uh, right when indie music was blowing up, um, and especially Canadian indie music, like you said, New, new Pornographers is one of them, Arcade Fire, um, you had um, a bunch of like uh, scenes throughout the rest of the country that were fantastic. Montreal scene, Wolf Parade. Um, I forgot Wolf Parade from there, you're right. Yeah, um, yeah, they were fantastic. Yeah, like they're fantastic. But it was such a fertile time in Canadian music, and you would get those acts coming through because that's where they would start. Right. Metric, broken social scene, stars, um, basically anything on the arts and crafts uh, record label. Um, you know, you had DFA, you had from above. Um, you know, all that stuff was happening right at that time. Take it in, sir. Yeah, Feist. You know, obviously was huge. So had a great opportunity to interview all these fantastic bands, get to meet them because it's such a small scene that you actually get to interact with these people who you know are legit like now heroes to a lot of people sure so. so what was the first band you remember falling in love with <laughs> oh goodness gracious besides rock set it was my first uh, concert <laughs> okay that's fair my first concert was uh the hudson brothers which is one of them is kate hudson's father they had a variety show nice. and it was at the rodeo and then the next one was uh, Johnny, uh, uh, chances are, what's his name? He's a country singer from Dallas. But anyway, yeah, that guy. Uh, rodeo was a huge factor when you're a kid here. You yeah. Know? Um, but yeah, outside of rock set. Yeah. No, um, so, you know, like, like any kid, anybody in the 90s, you know, like, like legit, I'm a, I'm a journalist because I grew up loving music in the 90s. I mean, there's just no way around it. Um, but 
I would say the um, the first band that I truly, truly, truly loved um, when grunge was at its height across the pond. You had bands that were basically pushing back against that. Sure. So you had you know Britpop. Britpop sure. was the scene, um, and I fell in love with you know Oasis, Blur, Suede. But I think the one band that I loved the most was Pulp because they were the ones Jarvis Cocker who is a master lyricist was basically talking about life like I was living it was the first time I actually had like understood my identity and place in the world sure listening to 1995's Different Class which is a masterpiece probably the best album to come out of that uh, genre um, and hearing you know Common People which is probably if you can argue is bigger now than it was back then sure Pulp you know garbage bands no offense to Oasis but garbage <laughs> bands are what caught on here yeah but the best stuff was Modern Life is Rubbish by Blur for sure I mean I know that the self-titled Blur record is their interpretation of Pavement basically and that they were in love with Pavement and they kind of thought this is what it should, this is our version of it yeah but there's so much <laughs> other stuff than Blur and Oasis there's I'm not a huge Stone Roses fan, but Stone Roses are, were a band that got big here. But Pulp and Suede, Suede, I like better than Pulp, but I now... Love, I do love Suede, Because too. of Jarvis's solo career, really like... And I like Jarvis on the cha- on the ch- chat shows. Yes. You know, I love it because he <laughs> just doesn't care. Yeah, he's you know? a smart guy. Like, uh, it's, um, there's nobody that has that captured uh, British society at that time, I think, better than Jarvis Cocker. But for a kid living in San Antonio, wanting to get the hell out of San Antonio, sure. I was, me and a, a group of friends, there was maybe four of us, that we were like, we were the Britpop kids in high school, and we would go to, shout out to Hogwild Records in San Antonio, where they would order us um, CD singles and CDs from across the pond, because at that time, uh, as you well know, um, they didn't release records uh, from England right, until months there. later, yeah, and you know there was an underground scene for music and like you know videos too. So I and I was a part of that, like the AOL chat rooms. Sure. You'd send five dollars to New York, you get a, a VHS tape full of like videos from England. Yeah, um, and so I was all a part. Of that. I was basically like that was our thing. Like that that was what set us apart from everybody else. Sure. Um, growing up in a humdrum city town. It really made made us felt uh, feel more um, sexy and romantic, and like we were tapped into something that nothing, no one else was. Kind of like being a punk, you know what I mean? Sure. But for the grunge era. Well, I mean, it's a thing where most people don't understand that if you're a journalist, you if you, I had an older brother, and he did turn me on to Bad Brains and Minor Threat, but he <laughs> was not really into that because he's five years older, so he liked a lot of hit parader circus magazine type shit. Sure. Nothing wrong with that. Dawkins not a terrible band. I don't. <laughs> You specifically love them, but him introducing me to Van Halen made me want to play guitar. And then, sure. you know, Minor Threat taught me I would suck forever because they were 16 when they made out of stuff. You know? Yeah, I mean, like, no doubt. Like, I mean, I was still in the grunge like everybody else. I mean, I was going to see Bush, you know, and all that, you sure. know. Uh, Stone Temple Pilots. I loved Stone Temple Pilots at the time. Uh, and I will still argue that Purple is a fantastic album. I think number four <laughs> is a better record because they pull so far away from that whole room. They kind of went glam rock, kind of too. Yeah. yeah. They went uh, full Bowie. It's, but, yeah, I get that. I mean, Purple was not a bad record. I remember when it came out. I, You know, the British thing was interesting to me because there was a guy in here named Bruce, and Bruce owned Numbers. So getting to see Blur for the self-titled tour at Numbers, getting to see... 
mean, they had Depeche Mode come from the woodlands to do an after-party DJ set. I mean, they had so many great bands. Uh, James from the UK. I love James, yeah. Fantastic. And they had Sway, so underrated. But it undersold and they canceled the show. But Bruce owned a record store called Record Rack and all the wax track shit I got from Bruce. So I got introduced to Ministry, Land of Rape and Honey era, to where we were ready for Mind is a Terrible Thing to Taste and, you know, obviously Revolts and Cox, just all that industrial shit. And then my life was Thrill Kill Cult. But he and a guy named Bob that worked at Vinyl Edge when they were on the north side changed my life. Because they put records in my hand. That exactly. You, you like this, you have to You have to hear this. Mm-hmm. And then my friend Ted later introducing me to Super Chunk and uh, all the Touch and Go shit. Jesus Lizard, June of 44 on Quarter Stick, which is basically Touch and Go. Just so much of that stuff. So it's nice to hear you had somebody like that in your life. No, as well. definitely. Uh, you know, like in the same thing too, we would drive up to Austin. And uh, that's the one thing that's missing today you know with the demise of the record industry is that you don't have that experience of going into a record store and having someone that is way smarter than you who's immersed into music and basically say you have to listen to this yeah and you get to listen to it there and then they become your new favorite band sure yeah bob uh, introduced me to wire yeah uh, noi can all of that stuff which would later i mean getting to interview the bassist from wire it was cool to talk to morrissey but man somebody from Wire I mean Ian Asbury from the Colt and I talked to about Wire because they toured with Wire that's amazing they toured with Wire wow when they were called Southern Death Cult okay okay. they toured with The Cure too but you know like that's funny you say that because Wire was a big influence on Britpop too Uh, that's why like Elastica basically ripped them off well yeah they sued them for it (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) so um, you know like uh, that time in my life basically expanded my musical like it was like the big bang in terms of getting into the Smiths and getting into like Bowie and getting into like all the great British music you know there's a one of my favorite sayings is like you know Americans define the music but the British refine the music sure and it's totally legit I mean like all the best bands come from England I mean the Stones Beatles Led Zeppelin Pink Floyd like I mean you can't argue every Clapton band that is not Clapton by himself (laughs) Blues Breakers Cream Cream, you know yeah no I, I, I totally agree with that it's funny because that was also an era where I knew who Daniel Johnson was, so I didn't need to see Kurt Cobain wear the Daniel Johnson Hi, How Are You shirt. But there's an interview where the guy, it's Spin, and the guy said, what record is that? And he picks it up and he said, oh, that's Jandek. And he said, what's his story? He's like, he's not pretentious, but only pretentious people like him. And it's like so brilliant because that's super true. But on the flip side of it is... Like is that, Morrissey. Yeah, what these guys were into made me listen to what they were into. You know, sure. I mean... Because you wanted to follow the trail. I mean, there's a million bands where I would have never known who they were if somebody didn't say, oh, I was influenced by this. And we don't get that really more either. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so. But I think that's why, you know, it's so important that, you know, music publications are still going because, you know, where do you get that from? Otherwise, you're force fed whatever the algorithm spits out at you on Spotify or whatever, you know, to be able to dig through crates is still, uh, I think, so important and relevant uh, to what comes on in the future. And you actually like the smart artists today understand that you sure. know like they definitely go back to the history and like it's always been the way in music musical history is that you know the best artists will crib from what's come before them sure 
And I mean, like Cobain liking K Records and me discovering mm-hmm. K Records and that whole Olympia scene and, you know, Bratmobile and all that. It, it's very. I mean, now, artists, when they talk about who they like, I'm like, well, I saw them live when I was 20, you know, so it's not like a super big deal to me. But every now and again, somebody will bring up somebody, I'm like, oh, wow, that's a rare one. I think the coolest part of writing about music is when someone, I told this to Daniel Jackson, I compared an artist to Mark Almond. And some kid rando messages me on Instagram and says, I didn't know who Mark Allman was. I looked him up and realized I'd heard his music, but I didn't know who Soft Cell was. Yeah. I, that, and in my head, I thought, man, I wish I'd picked a cooler artist to compare that yeah, person no, to. Yeah, no, it's so funny you say that because, you know, like I follow Stars, the band from uh, Montreal, um, you know, part of the Broken Social Scene crew. Uh, crew. I follow them on Twitter and they're like, you know, they, uh, they mentioned Beautiful South. And I was like, you know, I always thought that, you know, Stars, you know, I've interviewed uh, Torque from that band a couple of times. who's was a fantastic interview. Same. Great, and, great and interview. Yeah, and he'll, like, talk about music with you for an hour, you know. Sure. Uh, and he, and I and I posted, oh, no, actually, he posted something about, you know, like, their influences or something like that. And I said, I was like, I always thought that you uh, were directly influenced by the beautiful South. And he was like, and they were actually responded, like, almost immediately, like, we completely stole from the beautiful South. Yeah, really. I mean, there's bands like of Montreal where I just assume, well, they have to like Apples and Stereo. Yeah. Because they sounded exactly like, nothing against them. I think Kevin's a genius, but I just like, was literally like, that's the first thing I was like, oh, they sound, and the White Stripes sounded like uh, a couple bands, actually, you know. When he said it in the documentary, I was like, oh, that makes sense. Those are all stuff I would assume they would be into. So, you're writing in Canada at this mm-hmm. point? Yes. Um, yeah, so I'm writing for the All Weekly up there in Halifax, the coast, but then I eventually end up writing for, uh, do a little bit of work with Exclaim, which is the national music uh, magazine. It's free um, across Canada. It's still going, still going strong. Um, and, uh, you know, picked that up. Um, you know, started DJing, you know, like end up getting to the point where uh, you know, like I opened for Steve Aoki at one point, which oh, was cool. crazy, which yeah. was weird. Like, you know, like I was never a good DJ, you know, but I had good music taste and that's really how it started. Sure. Um, you know, we would get some fantastic, um, electronic music artists in Halifax, uh, because the love for electronic music there was extremely strong for years. Uh, and they had a great gay club scene. Sure. Uh, and you know, like, um, the gay clubs where they play the best electronic music. Absolutely. I mean, that's it's always just been that way. Yeah, yeah. and um, you know, it, there's a, a place called Reflections that we go, and there in in Halifax, your uh, the regular bars open until two. The cabarets, which the gay bar was, is open until three thirty. You can drink till three thirty. Oh, wow. So we go to the regular bar, go see a show, then go dancing until you know three thirty. Then there's some like you know skeezy after after hours club. Sure, uh, but. Um, you know, uh, through that, you know, uh, there was no one writing about the electronic dance music scene in Can- in Halifax, in Nova Scotia. And um, they had some great festivals there. There's a Vol Festival, which is in Anaganish, which brings a lot of electronic artists in, uh, eclectic electronic artists. Um, but uh, I started writing about that because there was a need. You know, like there, sure. was, there were some big shows happening and no one was writing about it. So seeing an opportunity, I started writing about this. And that's how I ended up meeting people in the scene they're like I'll teach you how to DJ you have great taste in music uh, and then end up doing you know I had um, you know two uh, monthly nights 
and I had a weekly night. Uh, I got to the point where I was making more money DJing than I was regular work. Um, and, you know, it was, like, the best years of my life, you know? Sure. like So I just got to the point where I was doing, like, ele- electro house music. like I was, But I was also doing indie dance, like, remixes, you know? Oh, like, cool. Yeah, no, like, so taking bands that we love and, to dance beats, and I'd, I would, like, dig for those. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I flew to Boston on a work trip, and I, you know, like, I scrounged through crates there. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I was DJing there, uh, just absorbing a ton of music. Ended up uh, writing about, and because there was a need, uh, ended up writing about hip hop, ended up writing about jazz, and then uh, got an ch- opportunity to host the Atlantic Jazz Festival, which is kind of like the Ottawa Blues Festival, um, Montreal, uh, uh, Montreal Blues Festival, too, kind of like that. Um, and um, the, I got to introduce Manitoba, who became Caribou. Right. Um, at, at his show there early his on. His record's great. Yeah. Yes, fantastic. Uh, one of the best records I've heard this year. Um, and super awesome uh, guy. Got to introduce that. The next year they brought me back to introduce the main uh, stage uh, of that, which was Bonkers. And um, and then the Junos, which is the Canadian Grammys, called me up like, hey, we want you to be a juror for the um for uh, for the junos or whatever and i was like great i was thinking you know i would get to do something cool like alternative rock album sure like well actually we want you to do the vocal jazz album of the year and i can tell you right now (laughs) there's not a lot of good vocal jazz uh, musicians in canada so (laughs) but you know it was kind of cool you know i got to listen to some new stuff and it's only because i wrote about some jazz artists that were coming in for this festival the next year I got Contemporary Jazz Album of the Year, which was not bad because you had like Diana Krall, sure. who's fantastic, married to Elvis Costello. Um, and then the next year, then I got to get the the good the good award. I got Alternative Music of the Album of the Year, oh, cool. which is when Neon Bible won the Juno okay. for that category. So it was, I mean, I got, I got to the point where I was, you know, like, you know, uh, establishing myself, ended up doing PR um, and uh, for a couple of musicians. The one musician who I work with did some pro bono work is Rich O'Coin, uh, who uh, has opened for the Flaming Lips. Uh, fantastic. I like one of my most recommended records that just came out called United States. Go seek it out. It's fantastic. It's like kind of like dancey. It's inspiring. Uh, but I did some work with him. I did work with a guy named Classified, who is probably at one point one of the biggest hip hop artists in Canada. But at that point, I was like, you know, I, I'm sick and tired of eating ramen noodles, living the artist's sure. lifestyle. And that's when I came back to Texas. So, I mean, it is a thing where I told somebody one time when Bob Mould lived in Austin, I would not bug him. And he was really nice to me because I didn't bug him. <laughs> and I turned him on to Bedhead, which I know he loves. He came to Houston to see Bedhead. Nice. And he he had this continual thing that if you dig through rock, you will find again and again, which is he had a Volvo station wagon. Cobain had one. A lot of great guitarists had, had a Volvo station wagon, you know? Mm-hmm. And he used to say that, you know, music doesn't get better in a bigger room. Well, there's a lot of truth to that. I, I cap it off around 3,500. I feel like if you can see a band before they play a basketball arena... Why go see him in the basket? And there's stuff you could... I, I said this with Daniel. I wish I could have seen the police in a small room. I wish I could have seen ALO in a small room. It just didn't... I wasn't alive when that... Or I was and I was too young to go. 
But what always fascinated me was that, you know, people think EDM is this first coming and it's like a fourth coming. That whole Oaki Oaki scene, I remember that. It was a handful of guys that basically ran everything, including DJ Toa Toa from D-Light. You know, it was just this crazy, like, era. It just didn't hit like it did this last time. You know, we have Diplo and, you know, Dead Mouse and Daft Punk and all that. I mean, I try to tell people Daft Punk and the Chemical Brothers are way older than you think they are. Oh, for know? sure they are. And in fact, Homework was probably the first dance record that really converted me over to that. And I actually partook in the dance scene of the of the late 90s, early 2000s here in Texas, which was really strong. Really good, yeah. Um, and brought in fantastic artists. Um, you know, uh, DJ Mixmaster Mike, I saw. Um, you know, uh they would bring in like DJ Kaoki was a big one um, but you know like fantastic uh, here in Houston I drove here from San Antonio when I was younger uh, to the old Houston arena to see this fantastic um, uh, show with a ton of great DJs um, but yeah I mean it's like um, there's and if you look at EDM from back then too there's so much of it in modern popular music if sure. you look at any of the hip hop music it directly ties right back to that. And it's a weird mishmash because guys like Tricky, who just put out a new record, and Goldie, <laughs> and Jack Dangers, who was in Meet Me Manifesto, they're all still going. But their stuff was so... Now, a lot of that is techno and house and all that, but, oh yeah, it's definitely, you hear it in hip-hop. It's really weird to me when I hear a drop that's from something from techno. And I'm like, yeah, life... Uh, Life of Pablo. There's stuff on there that reminded me of the 90s. It was all dance music kind of stuff. And I'm like, this is crazy. Like, this record's not bad, but this shit, I've heard this before, you yeah. know? Uh, that riff that opens I Am a God off of Yeezy, uh, Jesus, is like straight out of techno. I mean, it's just like a German house techno sound, you know? So, it, I, I agree with you 100%. So, when did you go from Canada to Houston? What year would that have been? Uh, so, I uh, came back, I moved to Houston area in 2009, 2009. Um, I lived in Galveston for actually for a few years doing the, you know, like the nine to five type job. But it wasn't until I moved back up to Houston, um, probably in 2015, um, and I ran into, and I was looking to possibly get back into writing again for about music anyways, because I was still writing a lot. It just wasn't music oriented. Uh, I was still coming to shows all the time though. Like, I mean, I was driving up from Galveston to go to Walters on Washington, uh, you know, House of Blues, obviously, um, you know, uh, you know, like all the, the, Walters was really good, you know, like in terms of their programming. Um, but um, yeah, so I came up here like 2015. Was actually at a concert at House of Blues, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. I remember specifically, and uh, I was with a friend who introduced me to um, the food writer Eric Sandler, the great Eric Sandler at Culture Map. And um, you know, like after a couple of whiskeys after the show, you know, like just talked about you know my background and that they were looking for a music writer. And kind of put me on that path, back on that path, which was, you know, I was so grateful because it was nice to get back to writing about the thing that I loved the most, yeah. you know, so. So, I mean, you've been doing this your whole life. 
I, obviously, Culture Map doesn't pay the bills. No. <laughs> I think most people don't understand that there's little to no money in. Alternative weeklies, when we were coming up, they were a big deal. But the world changed, and they didn't change with it. And so, Especially during COVID, too. Yeah, and, and I, don't, I don't know if I would call Culture Map an alternative weekly because it's much more diverse than that. Yeah. But, I mean... I guess nowadays you just you get to seek out what you want right you're not because there's not a lot of money in it they're not like no we're not going to run yeah, that it's um, a little more like we trust your, your sure. choice yeah no I mean that's that's the one good thing about it I mean I was doing a before COVID I was doing a weekly column on upcoming concerts and I could basically put whatever I wanted in there um, you know if there's a band I liked that maybe not everybody knew about I could, we could fit them in there Culture Map is definitely more of a populist uh, type publica- publication in terms of, uh, you know, they're looking for the bigger readership. Sure. Uh, the demographics tend to be a little bit older, um, which is which is fine. Um, so they cover like a lot of the bigger shows. Like I'll always be at the rodeo. Um, if there's something like you know at NRG or at uh, Toyota Center, you know sometimes you know smaller shows will get picked up too. I'll get to review those, but. Um, you know, if there's a big story, um, you know, they'll let me run with it, you know, so, um, which is fantastic. You know, I've had a couple of stories that were, um, linked in, you know, Pitchfork and in The Guardian and NME, which is more than I ever would have thought back in Canada, you know, like, so it's definitely opened up some doors for me there. It's definitely led to the job I'm at now. So I do, uh, for, you know, I did some uh, PR work on this. I do my uh, PR work to pay the bills. Um, but um, yeah, I know it's a, a, a great situation where they trust me. Uh, they basically, like, you know, like you're the guy for music. Uh, you know, it's been it's been hard with during COVID. You know, there's obviously with no shows, it's really really tough. But um, as we're sitting here, you know, uh, we're we're right next to White Oak Music Hall where they're about to bring back shows. So, right. you know, there's a glimmer of hope for all of us on I've the horizon. Been on, <laughs> I've been out on the lawn. I've seen the grids. With their, I've not, they're not built yet. But I've seen the spacing, and I think the show's sold out. But if you're worried about that, I can tell you they look like – it looks like it's being planned well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not a major laser guy. It's cool that Ape Drums is in it because he's from Houston. But – uh, I I've I've been told the production on it. And it sounds cool. So, um, is there ever anything like? Is there anything that bothers you? Like a band reaches out to you and they get your name wrong, or they, <laughs> you know, like they think you're not gonna know what they're doing. They go through and like all your stuff on Insta. They like all your stuff on Twitter, and then all of a sudden they hit you up for a favor. Does that bother you? Uh, no. I mean, the I think the one thing that bands need need to realize is that we get inundated by um content from artists all over the place um and it's not something that we take it's not something to take personal if we can't get to whatever they're doing right uh i mean i'm always happy to receive information from uh any bands i love to to hear what local bands are doing too and i'll do my best to include them uh, when I can sure um, because I you know Houston has such a diverse scene like I mean I championed the, the suffers early on you sure. know I think they're fantastic um, uh, there's a uh, in, and there's a ton of great other great bands here Wild Moccasins I love them I think that what they're doing is fantastic same 
um, you know, like they recorded with the producer did the Shins record. Yeah. Um, you know, so. Um, <laughs> I think Krungman's the one none of us saw. No, I mean, like, he came out of nowhere. Like, I, that's one thing that surprised me too. I tried to tell people they played a 250 cap room, they went and played to the world. They came back and sold a 4,300 seater out like it was nothing. Yeah, I mean, it probably could have done twice that, you know, the right. way that they've been going, which um, is fantastic for. And I think I, that band is actually probably the perfect amalgamation of what Houston is sure. in terms of the uh, international flavor, the hip hop flavor. Like, I don't, I, if anybody tells me, I mean, Suffers definitely has that Gulf Coast uh, soul thing going on, but I don't think uh, any other band sums up what Houston is about. And all of its diverse populations, as Brunkman does. Yeah, I, I mean, growing up here, everybody thinks you were banging screwed. You weren't, because that <laughs> didn't exist. You were, if you listen to Houston music, it was, and this is no knock at Houston bands that in my teens I fell in love with. The bands I fell in love with in my teens were the Hates, My Dolls, Culture Side. The Culture Side, I told Dan, their uh, album Tacky Souvenirs is like the Troutmass replica of its era. It's just so ahead of its time. You couldn't legally make that record now, but there was so much stuff here that we just didn't know about, you know? I always felt like the pen holders are responsible for getting that out, but the flip side of that is if you're at a paper you don't own or you don't have ownership in, um, you're kind of handcuffed, and it's not a rude thing. They only have so much money. They don't make as much as they used to, and so you might only get one thing a week. yeah, the not being able to get to stuff, I tell everybody, well, today I got 150 emails, and those are from labels I love. I've got great relationships with Sub Pop, Matador, uh, everything on Secretly, you know, European labels you've never heard of. And there might be one dice roll where I don't know if it's going to do well or not. But when you know what the demographics that read what you do are, you're always going to feed them. My biggest example is OCs. We could have run a thing about, this is today, we could have run a thing about White Stripes' greatest hits. There was nothing extraordinary on it. It's not like there's unheard songs on it. Yeah. So I'm like, well, there's a new OC song. Let's run that. It'll do great. And so you, it's not a personal thing. It's not that you're an asshole that is holding keys and you're not trying to help people. The music industry is very different. A lot of people think the way it worked in the 90s is the way it works now because you got to see it firsthand. I mean... Labels aren't moving to a city and opening up shop to catch bands. They're just not, you know. Yeah. There's Jesus th- sold something like a million its first week and sixty thousand the second week, and it was a considered a flop. And I promise you, if a record comes out now and does that, it's considered a hit. No, definitely, and that's the thing too. Is like you know, as an obsessive music fan, I would actually watch the charts, and I still look at the charts. Um, and the thing is, is that um, you know. There's a valid point that maybe music criticism doesn't really matter anymore because the thing is is that people get their music from, you know, the, the internet, the algorithm. Sure. TikTok, you know, is like huge now because it's starting to break break new artists, you know, yeah. because there's so many people on, on that platform. And, um, you know, it's a brave new frontier. And, you know, music journalists are, are kind of live in a dinosaur-type mentality. You know, we, like... As much as we lo- would love to still live in the 90s where we get free stuff all the time. Sure. It's such a fast-changing uh, culture now 
Um, there is a, not a lot of constraints in terms of how so many can get big. I mean, there's MySpace blew up a bunch of people. I think of Lily Allen, like, was one of those big ones. Yeah. Um, and now it's like TikTok is that new platform. So it's like always constantly, constantly trying to shift with where the music is at um, and trying to keep up with who the next big thing is. I mean, right. I mean, because that, like, ultimately, I, if, if there's a journalist, music journalist, that doesn't say that discovering the next big thing isn't what gets them off, then they're lying, you sure. know? So and it there's really stuff drives where them. What I find is that I'll read something and I think, I don't agree with this because this person is not old enough to know they've missed something. Like, uh, the Dirty Nail was one. I got crammed down my throat how great it was. I listened to it and I didn't get it. But when that happens, I ask somebody younger, hey, what do you think of this? And they say, it sucks. Then we don't cover it because they're the future. What I like really doesn't matter. It's what they like, you know? And so that's the only way you can stay competitive. That's why we can keep doing what we do. Is there a thing now, you've been doing it so long, is there something you want to do when concerts return? Is there like an interview you want to do? Or is there somebody you say, I want to do this before I die? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> that's a big question. Uh, I, you know, like, honestly, I just w- would love to get, like, music back. I mean, I just wrote a story on the Save Our Stages Act, which is nuts in the sense that John, uh, Senator John Corden, who's a Republican, who you wouldn't think would be into the arts, is actually co-sponsoring this bill in the Senate, which is getting a lot of um, support. But because of the, you know, the chaos that's happening in the government... Uh, hasn't been able to be passed yet um and i actually reached out to his office you know he's behind it basically to save um live music venues independently owned music venues because you know uh the uh, i think it was the austin chamber or business association did a study um that they uh, that most independently owned music venues would not be able to be open past Halloween. Yeah, so here we are, and as we're recording this, it's, you know, first part of October, so um, that just tells you how dire it is. They haven't passed this act. It's going to be a big stimulus package. It would pay something like up to 60% of um, payroll, uh, which will definitely help. Um, and Or no, I think it's like 80% of payroll. Um, and the, the thing is, is people don't understand. I think we've taken music for granted for so long is that um, you know some of these smaller venues often live on each show sure um, in terms of paying their rent paying their staff and we're going to see I real, and I hate to say this but I predict we're going to see a, uh, get a lot worse in the music scene before it gets better sure I would tell anybody that doesn't understand and this will probably piss off agents I know but the way the show metrics work are the agents want all the ticket money. There's a little fee that you pay per ticket. I'm not a fan of it, but it exists. It exists because they have to pay the sound guy. They have to pay the door guy. And the club doesn't get all of it. Some of the places give them half. Some of them only give them 20% of that fee. But that's what pays the bills and liquor and the merchandise. Mm-hmm. And so when you have a room that holds 250 people and the tickets are 20 and somebody wants six grand... You have to have a merch cut. You have to. And that's why t-shirt prices went up. But it's not the venues being greedy. It's the people handling the artists. And something's got to give. 
and so most venues are show to show. I've always said the it was not this way when I was younger because the majors were smarter. Their model, has, the major label system, has always been let's let's sign three hundred bands and hope one of them hits. Now the majors can't exist without the indie because the indie labels fuel the excitement to get somebody to buy a major label release. You don't get Billy Eilish, Eilish without Angel Olsen, Snail Mail, Waxahachie. People don't fall in love with major label artists like they used to because the quality of songwriting and personality typically isn't there and that's nothing that's not me being an old guy that's just being honest what they fall for is someone they can connect to on a personal level somebody that you know to me Bandcamp is the most important streaming platform because it is a direct link to the artist you buy a record you usually get an email it's like hey thank you you know mm -hmm. so I'm with you I think that that we need that bill passed but it I think that most people don't understand the economics. The margins are real slim on live Very music. Very slim, yeah. Um, when we did the live stream, we thought about doing one for Austin, and somebody up there said, well, the consensus we keep hearing is people don't want to give money to a bunch of millionaires. I was like, I've never met a, somebody that owns a venue that's a millionaire. <laughs> I mean, most people I know that own a venue have a 10-year-old car, you know? And that's what I love about music, though, and people in the music industry, at the least the local level, is that... They're in it because they love it. It's not anything more than that. They're not in it to get rich because it, the the system that exists right now um, doesn't allow people to get rich off of what we're doing. It basically is for the art, you know, and sure. for the love of it. Um, and I guess, like, so back to your original point, like, what would you like to write about? I would just like to uh, write about how the scene is evolving. I'm really curious to see what's going to happen next. I mean... It looks dire now, but, you know, like, that's the one thing is music always survives, no matter what. I mean, it's been around since the dawn of humankind, right? right. So it will be it will be fine. It'll be back in some form or fashion. But I really do feel like it's going to contract on some level. Um, you know, it, it, that's where, like, the one thing I'm concerned about the most is that where the big companies like uh, Live Nation basically suck everything up and sure. then it gets homogenized. I think I just read an article... Where the guy that runs Live Nation now like owns like uh, like some big company he owns like the from distribution to uh, like Sirius I think it's the guy who runs Sirius Radio now owns Live Nation so he owns the artist performing platform he owns the way of distribution to the masses and he owns the radio so like that's a lot of power right there sure. and I think that couldn't happen in a vacuum like COVID because people are desperate for right. money right now so I'm really curious I, I've tried to do this in my journalism career is look at the bigger picture uh, and I feel like in my writing I've, uh, I've been doing I, I do a lot of local uh, you know like on the ground stuff but I try to do the stories that look at the bigger picture of what's going to happen next um, because you will see the, the writing on the wall um, and that's what's going to happen you know a couple years down the line so sure. whereas Houston you know like going back you know Houston was a town that it was a flyover city you know right. like big bands wouldn't stop here right. but the fact that the scene kind of grew organically um, and um, you know it became a cool city where um, you know like you could get you know a thousand people out on a Tuesday night sure um, you know like really like uh, and only in the last five to ten years have I seen this because you know Houston from a music standpoint I'm sorry for people living here 
but it wasn't that cool compared to people like outside of it. We'd rather go to Austin. You know what I mean? Right. Like, like it's legit. Like, you know, like it's a. But now there's so much diverse music here, and they have the infrastructure. Uh, you know, like uh, we were uh, before this interview, we were talking about Day for Night, where they're bringing in big time artists, and it was almost like, wow, we've really turned a corner as a music city. Sure. And that was what was so exciting about that. Unfortunately, it took a nosedive, but um, I still think that the infrastructure is there. Yeah, I think it. You know, it's called a B market here because you can sell out in a lot of cities and not sell out here. True. You know, it's on the artists, though. Cleveland probably has the worst market. When I get told stories of Rihanna shows in a basketball <laughs> arena, not even selling five thousand tickets. Wow. Yeah. That's obviously worse than here, but it's not to say that it still doesn't happen. I mean, Phoebe Bridgers has not been here since touring her first record. But she played a 250 cap room, and yeah. her opener was Soccer Mom. Yeah, no, I remember that, yes. And so you don't, you wouldn't see that in Austin. She's going to play a bigger space. You're going to see even Dallas, you know. And so it's a thing that a lot of people don't understand. Why don't bands come here? Well, were you an asshole? <laughs> because at Phoebe Bridger's show, people were loud as shit talking, yeah. and she's playing a goddamn acoustic. It's like, yeah, they're not coming back for a while. I can't say, but I know why Angel Olsen hasn't been here in a while. And it would have pissed me off, too. And there's tons of bands that go through that. Why go there? I can go to Austin. The only reason a lot of people come here is because they're going to New Orleans. And a lot of people here don't like Austin. You need to understand, every band that goes to Austin, at some point adds Houston. Because Indeed. it's extra money, you know? At the end of the day, it's extra money. I do feel like we've gone to a point... I mean, like, look, hip-hop is the most popular form of music right now. And Travis Scott is doing Astro World. Sure. You know what I mean? And that sells out in a heartbeat. 40, 50,000 people, right? So we are on the map on that level. Uh, in terms of the diversity, I don't know if that necessarily is still true anymore, um, but we are able to uh, draw a certain type of music act, sure. which is something that was not possible 10, 15 years ago. No, and it's hard to believe even five years ago. Oh, yeah, definitely. So what's next? I mean, obviously you're like, the rest of us are waiting for shows to come back. Is that kind of where you're at? You're just waiting to see? Yeah, I mean, uh, just uh, following what's happening. I mean, it really all depends on where we go with uh, the pandemic. Um, it's been tough on everyone. Um, you know, that's, that's, and I think that because people take advantage of live entertainment, um, they don't understand um, how devastating an impact it has been. Um, I was told, um, by the Save Our Stages group, the people, the ground, uh, you know, the um, um, the group that's behind the Save Our Stages Act, that Texas alone, it's like $390 million of economic value every year. Yeah. Um, the music scene, they don't understand. And then it also affects tourism. Tourism's getting hit hard too. So uh, where music goes is where the economy is going. Like, Absolutely. It's a, such a, like, it's such a bellwether thing to see what's happening so yeah just kind of hanging in there and um you know thankfully as we're talking you know um they're talking about possibly opening bars again um they passed it today yeah uh whether that happens or not uh remains to be seen but um due to local restrictions but um i think eventually either people are going to get so tired of covid and be like all right let's just let us hang out or um, it's just going to fizzle out like most pandemics do. Like as a history major, sure, I, I understand 
uh, you know, like the last big pandemic we had in the early 1900s fizzled out after two years. Right. And which is kind of the projections I'm hearing from the music industry when they they see big, large gatherings happen again. Is, sure. You know, like Indoor gatherings. 2021, 2022 yeah. is kind of where we're, where we're looking at right Everybody now. that was smart rescheduled their tours for fall of next year. Yes, exactly. Uh, not that you're stupid if you have March, April, May, because that is very plausible. But, yeah, I... I mean, I, I, it's funny because all everything has to fit. But right now, if you have a show, people will pay more. Doesn't matter who it is because they just want to see a show. Exactly. And it tells you the the, the drive is still there. I was uh, the when they announced here in town the first like uh, rooftop show um, out of venue here, um, and, and I and I feel bad because I know that not everybody is listening. To this is in Houston, but sure. <laughs> But um, the first rooftop show here in town, you know, it could have been Nickelback up there. People sure. were just happy to see people with guitars and microphones, yeah, you know? <laughs> I, I will tell you, it, it's a place called Axelrad, and we teamed up with Wonky Power for the live stream for two reasons. They did live streams before anybody knew what they were. They used to host them on their website and on YouTube easily five, six years ago. And the other reason was is that I watched... L, I was at the show, but I was watching El Lago's set on Instagram stories from blushing, watching it on their TV, and I realized how pro it looked, and I thought, you're a damn idiot if you don't team up with these guys, because they knew exactly what they were doing. Yeah, and I, you know, it's, I have a lot of respect for what you've done in bringing live streaming, um, you know, doing a live streaming event, because that's another thing I hear from music industry and insiders, too, that I talk to is that after the after the pandemic is over that live streaming component is going to be i can i can see it's monetized it's going to be monetized and they've done it on a certain level uh like you know uh glastonbury plays it on bbc uh, bbc tv yeah um you know like big festivals in europe have done this for years and they understand there's value in that but you know like acl has been starting to do like the online streaming so i could see that you know yeah, you may not be able to make it out to ACL Fest or Coachella, but pay twenty bucks and you can see all these bands. Right. So I think that I think that's what we're gonna see here in in the next year or two. That they're gonna instead of it being free streaming, you're gonna end up having to pay to basically basically open up the doors. Right. Right. Well, that's cool. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. I appreciate it too. Thank you so much. Self-Release Songs is produced by David Garrick and Closed Captioned. You can hear new episodes every Thursday on the Closed Captioned website at closedcap.com or you can stream it wherever you stream podcasts. If you'd like to support us, feel free to do so at anchor.fm. Just look up Self-Release Songs. Thanks for listening.